Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. I'm your host, Nick Sigelski, joined with my co-host, Jen Allen Knuth. And today we have got Tom Williams, who is the head of Clary Align and is former CEO over at DealPoint. Jen, why should people listen? Tom was speaking my love language on this one, Nick. We talk a lot about building a point of view, delivering a point of view, how you show up and add value to the customer instead of simply extracting answers to our discovery questions. And a three, a two, a one, listen to Tom speak Jen's love language. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's show is sponsored by Calendly. If you're interested in accelerating your sales cycle, improving your prospects' experience, and booking more demos, there's one scheduling automation platform on the market that does all three. Calendly offers team-based scheduling, solutions and integrations for every department, and lead routing to instantly book qualified meetings from your website and match known leads to reps based on real-time Salesforce assignment. I find it really helpful when I have to book meetings with multiple people on my side so that I don't have to coordinate everyone's calendars. Get started today by checking out the show notes or Calendly.com. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. All right, Tom, welcome to the show. We start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Number one, write down your POV. Make sure that the customer actually agrees with it. So it's fine to get it wrong. And oftentimes we're talking about making sure that you're validated with the customer. If you write it down, then you have the opportunity for them to see one, that you're listening and that you care. And two, if they correct it, now they're invested with you to make something better together. Your credibility will go through the roof and your manager is going to give you less stick because you really have qualified this customer a lot better than normal. I love it. What's number two? Number two, visualize the deal beyond the customer wants it to the customer's CFO is confident that there's actually going to happen. So many deals have died, even though the champion loves it. The CFO is the adult in the room. They're not thinking about how you're going to make the champion's life better. They're thinking about the other impacts on other parts of the business. So Unless you can prove to that CFO that there's a really safe path to making this thing happen, you're going to be in a real hard situation when they're saying, I don't think we need this right now. Beautiful. Round us out. What's number three? Number three, multi-thread is a two-way street. So we all know that we're supposed to multi-thread, but a lot of buyers think of this in terms of, I need to talk to my 7.8 people over on the buying committee. 
In fact, it really is just as important for the buyers to know that there's multi-thread the other direction. They don't want to just be gatekept by the seller. They want to be able to talk to the people, their peers over on the selling side. This does two things. First of all, it boosts your credibility as a seller that you have this army of people who are standing behind you, ready and willing to help this customer solve the problem. Two, it helps the customer understand that they have access to the people over on the selling team, which makes them feel better. And then three, your manager sees that you are doing good multi-threading. So they're going to, again, be less likely to critique you when they're doing the deal inspection. Awesome. Okay. So your three actionable takeaways, Tom, this is my sales love language. I am so excited to pick your brain on this topic. Let's start at the very top. So I'm a new seller. I hear you say you've got to show up with a point of view and you've got to show it to the customer. Let's take it like very step one. What exactly do you mean by bringing a point of view? Is it a point of view about your product? What is it when you say point of view? So a point of view is about the customers, either their business or their job role. And you know something about their business or their job role that they don't know that you can do better than them and make them be better, either doing the job that they do or making their company better. The point of view comes from the thing that your company has built over the years that does something better than what they do by themselves. And when you come in with a point of view, you're saying there are probably some symptoms that you have. And I understand what the root cause of that is, and I can tell you how to fix it. So that point of view is coming in as an educated person about their business or about their job role and being brave enough to say, I think I can help you do better than you're doing today. Let's discuss. Now, it's not going to be perfect, but you start like a worldview of what well, I think there's not enough buyer collaboration in the world. So my point of view is, I wonder if we talked about it more or if we got them to give more, we would be better off. That's what my point of view is. And I apply that when I'm talking to customers. I remember back when I first started selling, I was like 23 years old. I walked into a division of GE, sat down with the CMO of their team. And I was like, why on earth would they care about my point of view? I'm 23 years old. I have no worldview. So what advice do you give to sellers that are starting off of how they actually develop that worldview and turn it into a point of view to bring into that meeting? Yeah, I mean, it is really easy for your CEO to walk in with a legitimate point of view and just start spouting about all the philosophy of how the world could be a better place. As a rep, you are representing this company. So when I say your own point of view, it really, it's taking the thing that your company does better than anybody else in the world, the thing that they know that nobody else knows, and expressing that, representing that. The number one easiest way to own that point of view and to bring it into your own heart is to go and talk to senior people in your own company. Go ask for a meeting with somebody two, three levels above you and say, I'm trying to develop the point of view about our product. Could I take you out to lunch? And you get a couple of things out of this. You get an unfiltered perspective of what true leaders say and do. They see that you're a curious kind of person who wants to have a better point of view and wants to really enunciate the values of the company. And three, I guarantee you that person will buy you lunch. So free lunch, much better selling and a swift rise to the top because you're noted as being a high flyer. I really love this one because I can put away a lunch. You know, sometimes there's salespeople who are like, wait, that seems kind of scary to go talk to someone three levels above me in my company. We're a big organization. Well, 
you're literally cold calling COOs all day, salesperson listening to this. You better feel comfortable reaching out to someone more senior in your own organization. Yep. People don't go to conferences and trade shows as much as they used to. But Mm -hmm. if you are at a trade show and there is a lull, that is the time to get your senior leader's point of view and start enunciating and practicing it and feeding it back. They will love you for it and they'll remember you for it and it will come back to, to benefit you in months and years to come. I'd love to ask you how you position or set up the presentation of your point of view. Because my guess is if, Tom, you're the sales rep and you're sitting down with Jen and she's, how do you say, hey, I'm about to share my point of view with you in a way that actually gets him to say, okay, let me listen for a second. So you had a 20-second cold call. You got to the 15, 20-minute, half an hour I don't really know you, but you had a good pitch kind of thing. What I like to do is I like to talk about two shared truths and then something that they didn't realize. So if you call out something, what I like to think of as a symptom in their business, and you can say, I saw the symptom either in real life where your company is having a dip, or I saw your messaging on this blog post here. This is a symptom of one of your observations, one of those parts of your point of view. Do you see that too? And Do that for two things that you think that they'll recognize and they'll go, yeah, that is something true about my business. Then hit them with a third symptom that maybe ideally they haven't seen yet because then they'll go, this guy nailed two of them. Maybe the third one is true and I didn't know about it. Talk about the symptoms first that that are quantifiable and provable. And then the point of view part is those are just symptoms and they're actually caused by a single root cause problem. Now in Clary world, for example, we would say that the root cause problem of a lot of people's sales issues is that they don't have very good analytics. They're not looking carefully enough in which parts of their business are changing in real time. And so they're operating on bad assumptions. That's the root cause of the problem. And then in that first half hour call, I like to actually put a little bit of proof in the pudding and show a really quick demo to see what it could look like. But keep it to the very end so they don't have time to get stuck into, well, how do I change my logo color? But more, this is how we've taken these insights and this root cause and built a solution around it. Okay, so a lot of sellers, when they came up in selling, were trained of, I have to ask the customer questions, they give me something back, then I turn around probably a week later and say, here's the perfect solution. So if I'm a seller that's been trained in that manner, how do I reconcile what you're talking about on the first call? What am I doing to be able to ask questions and make sure I've got a good fit while still coming in with a point of view that shows I, one, have some credibility, but I also know what I'm talking about in the subject matter? What I like to do, I like to write down my point of view and where I've done some research on that customer and I've jotted down a couple of notes about what I think is true or what I think might be happening. And I literally flash that up on the screen and say, this is what I think might be happening. By showing it, first of all, you're being brave and you know, exposing yourself because you may well be wrong. So there's an acknowledgement of bravery. Second, there's an acknowledgement that you've done some work and you didn't just roll in for this and that you're the kind of person who writes things down. All of those are positive traits and would make me want to work with you. As long as it's not like radically wrong, then they'll say, yeah, that is an issue that we've been facing, but we tried something already. We tried to fix it or we think we've got it to a, a good enough situation where it's manageable or something where you're able to now sharpen your point of view. And ideally at that point, you can come up with that second or third symptom that maybe they haven't thought about that deepens the pain. 
Because if they come back and say, yeah, we did think we fixed that problem already, then you might have just disqualified yourself out of a, <laughs> out of a deal unless you can get them to dig a little bit deeper. But you've earned that right because you showed them something and you've shown them that you've put a little bit of time and effort into it, which goes a long way, just human to human level. So one of the things I want to call out that you did that I'm such a fan of is your language choice. You use the words might, maybe, looks like. I think as sellers, sometimes we are so scared of being wrong that we are fearful of having an opinion on something. And I think what I heard in the way that you delivered that is you are inviting them to correct you. And humans love to correct. It's yeah. nothing to be scared of, right? I want you to correct me because when you correct me, I learn new information. I want to call it out because I think that is one of the things that sellers really are fearful of is just the being called out as being wrong. It's fantastic if you're wrong or being told that you're wrong. If they don't correct you, that's actually arguably worse because it means you completely got it wrong or they don't care about you. Tom, one of the things that I expected coming in this interview was I thought you were just going to talk about a lot of the same stuff that we've talked about related to mutual action plans and, oh, it's really good to document all the steps you're supposed to do. And then you said something to me and Jen in the pre-show where you were talking about earning the right to collaborate with your buyer or getting them to even want to do that. And you were talking about the idea of presenting a business case before we go through a mutual action plan. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that in the context of like why a lot of sellers are failing or struggling with using mutual action plans when selling. Yeah, it's really easy. If you have a plan to a place you don't want to go, I'm not really that interested in it. So the way a successful deal happens is first of all, they need to want it. And that means that you've proven that they have an urgent and important problem. You've proven that it's too risky for them not to do anything. And arguably you've proven that it's going to be hassle for them to do it themselves. So those are three pretty big steps before you've ever talked about your software or how to make it happen. So they need to want that business outcome a lot. And you should spend an awful lot of time on that because until that point, they're not going to dig in deep. Now, I would say there's a very good case for your disqualification purposes of showing the plan pretty early to say, this is going to be a six-month problem that we need to solve together. And if they say, I only have 50 cents and I need it done tomorrow and I'm out of here, then you can save yourself a whole bunch of time. But in terms of them actually digging into the mutual action plan and really getting engaged, they need to want that outcome already deeply. Otherwise, you're going to be wasting your time. When you talk about business cases, I feel like a lot of times we sellers run right to ROI. And we're like, let me just put a big fat number on it. And I'm going to show you how great the world will be if you buy from us. You mentioned something in the pre-show about your take on ROI and what you do instead. I imagine that's part of how you construct the business case. Can you take us through how you help that customer understand really the cost of not solving the problem to begin with before you get into ROI? Because I think it's a really important point in business case building. There's this horrible secret in ROI calculators that they have all these inputs everywhere. And somewhere there's a single cell that just multiplies by 1.2. The cells don't even do anything. And everybody has this little cheetah multiplier. So I don't believe when a vendor says you're going to get 10,000% ROI and they don't believe it when you put it in because you multiply something by 1.2 and it ends up being a fantastic return like on their entire bottom line. Instead, I focus on what the pain is and kind of what the delta is between them doing it right and doing it wrong. Not if you buy my stuff, you'll be 1.2% better because that is meaningless because you don't even know where they started. So you don't know how good or bad they are 
and you're just multiplying it by 120%. Instead, if you say, and this, this is a great way to do this, if there's been change recently. So you ask them to compare this quarter with last quarter or last year's numbers to this year's numbers, and there's a, a downward trend. Say, well, what's that delta been? If, if everything was working like it did before pandemic, for example, what would your bottom line look like? And they say, well, we're down $40 million from pre-pandemic. And then you're drilling into, well, why do you think that is? And your insight is that they didn't successfully go from being a trade show based sales company to a online company. They, they just didn't nail that. Luckily, you have a way for them to bump up their pipeline back to those old numbers. So I'm not going to improve your business by 120%. I'm going to get you that $40 million or let's say half of that $40 million delta because I identified the problem that you actually have and there's a quantifiable price or cost to that problem. And I didn't talk about percentages. Tom, one of the things I've been struggling with, because I've been trying to do this more when I sell our sponsorship sales at 30 Minutes to President's Club, is I'm trying to have conversations with some of the, the VPs of marketing and CMOs that I sell to and I'll ask them for basic data about their business to help inform a, a case that we're putting together. And they don't always know. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, how am I supposed to do? One of the funny things is before I started working at Clary and before I founded DealPoint Align, I worked at an audio test and measurement company. And I was actually with my kids at an indoor swimming pool just a couple of months ago. And I suddenly realized I'm actually still in the test and measurement business at Clary. I never left. I hadn't realized that I'm still doing test and measurement. So I would say there is a lot to be said for helping your customers even quantify what their problems are. So if they say, I can't come up with the numbers, then you have a fantastic opportunity to come in as a consultative helper and earn some credibility to say, I can help you figure out the numbers. Why don't we look at your Salesforce together or sign the NDA or something that you know will let them get to that decision point? Because if they don't know the numbers, then they're not going to buy your stuff. Why, like, why would they? Because you can't even measure if it's been successful or not. So setting up some baseline criteria of what does good look like is predicated on the idea that you can measure stuff and you can add immense value of teaching them how to measure stuff. And now suddenly you're a rock star. These are the three KPIs that you should be looking at in your pipeline investments. And you're already ahead of the game versus the other guys who say, you should buy my stuff because you'll get 120% better performance. That answer just like fills my soul because I think that is that moment where you turn the table. So when I was selling challenger sales training, nobody wanted to buy sales training. Sales trainings are the last thing people want to buy. And so one of the things that we were trying to do is say, look, you've got a status quo problem, but no one ever knew how to measure a status quo problem. But when you give someone a framework and say, hey, go back in your CRM, see how many deals have not had a conversation in 60 to 90 days and how much of that is forecasted pipeline, all of a sudden now someone's got a number for it. And when you give yeah. someone a number of the problem, now they can shop the number around and the pain around as opposed to shopping the solution around. And that's the other thing, Tom, that I heard you do, which was none of that conversation was about your solution. And well, yeah, it was we're all about size. Right, exactly. You're putting it in the right order because you've got to have a problem to buy a solution. So I think that's another big takeaway from what you're describing is move away from our attachment to the solution and focus first on the development of, of helping them look at the problem the same way that we do. That's the other way that you hone your POV is by doing this a bunch of times and just being punched in the face and getting it wrong. I feel like a lot of buyers have been trained 
to expect a dancing monkey of a salesperson and they expect you to show them a demo, give me your pitch. How do you push back and reframe the scope of the interaction? There's two things there. First of all, I remember one of my favorite sales calls ever back when I was when I was an IC. I cold called this guy. He ran a car dealership in Rhode Island for what it's worth. And I started to go down my discovery questions. And he goes, hey, man, you called me. Why don't you tell me what you're selling? And I was like, I love this guy. Because the, the fact is, for all this discovery that we're trying to do, what they think they want is just, just show me the goddamn software and I'll tell you if it's going to fix my problem or not. A lot of the time, that's a perfectly legitimate you know, situation. And so I think one of the important things in discovery is how far down their urgent, important problem analysis have they already gone? And real early on, if they're like, yeah, you know, we've done the metrics, we've done the analysis, we know what's wrong with our pipeline, it's this, and I'm looking for a way to increase the number of enterprise deals that we have coming through Southeast Asia. There's not a whole lot of problem identification that I need to do there. And so it really is legitimate for me to skip. I can validate that we have the same root cause problem, but if they've done the work, then don't make them run through that process just to satisfy you. You've got to establish where are they, especially if they've reached out to you, then some of these initial urgent problem things don't apply. So what I want to do is I want to honor the request. I will always say at the top of that 30 minute call, and I always say literally these words, I swear to God, I will show a demo before we hang up the phone today. But before I know what to show, I have to understand a little bit more because the product can do loads of stuff. What I don't want to do is just show you the product and then you go, that's really cool because that doesn't, that doesn't do anything for either of us. I'm in the luxurious position that we sell to sellers. So I can be a lot more frank about it. But even if you're not selling to a seller, just I swear to God, I will show you the demo. Let me ask a couple of questions first and understand why we built the software first and go back to that framework of you can do nothing, you can do it yourself, or you can go with a vendor. I like this framework because it puts you on the same side of the table as the customer and it disarms them. It makes them realize, okay, maybe this guy isn't just trying to sell me whatever I have, no matter what. By saying, absolutely, you could do this by yourself. You can do anything by yourself. We need to investigate if it is cost effective for you to spend all that time building like something similar to what we built. If it's worth figuring out how are you going to support maintenance requests or security breaches, or when one of those libraries that you're using goes out of date and you need to upgrade the dependencies, or how are you going to roll it out to your team? And do you have training materials and everything ready? Because it's not just building the stuff. The solution is rarely the actual expensive part of making software. It's all the apparatus around it. So if you commit to saying, figure it out as an expensive problem that's costing you a lot, let's look at what it would take for you guys to fix it by yourselves. And then the really cool thing is by looking at what it takes for them to fix it, you are literally building out your business case of value because then you can present to the CFO, these are the things that you would need to do in order to fix this big expensive problem. I can do it for dramatically less money and less risk because I, what I actually like to do is put a timeline. I like to put a timeline on, here's the problem, here's the solution. What milestones would you have to do if you're doing this by yourself? Then I show how much risk there is on each of those points where something would go wrong if you decide to try to fix this problem for the first time, having never done it before. Then I show the much safer, faster route. It costs more money 
but it doesn't cost more resource and it does, certainly doesn't cost more risk to go with my route. And then they can compare for themselves. And you've done this kick-ass discovery on understanding like who the players are on their team so that you can put a really strong both business case and implementation plan in front of the CFO for them to sign with their gold pen. Tom, this is brilliant. And I have to imagine there are some folks listening to this thinking, oh gosh, I really want to do that. I don't even know how to start putting something like that together. And I'm wondering, do you think there's a world we could document what you just talked about and maybe give it to the audience for free? The short answer is yes. I have this all carefully written down. I'm happy to share that stuff. Folks, check the show notes. We'll uh, we'll have something li- linked for you all so you can just steal from Tom's brilliance. <laughs> so I got one more question for you, Tom. I want to make this really real for folks who are trying to build almost like the anti-business case that ends up being in their favor, where it's like, hey, let's look at all the ways that you could do this yourself and the cost factors at play. And you mentioned a couple, right? Like you build this in-house, you're going to need training documentation. There's infrastructure and security support. Are there other things that sellers should be thinking about when they're trying to build the hey, you probably shouldn't do this in-house case? The biggest hidden cost is in implementation, rollout, and then adoption. Okay, well, customer success, essentially. No one ever thinks about poor or customer success, and they will have an even bigger problem with customer success because they think they just did this on the side to fix a little problem. But in fact, they're going to need to have ongoing, and they don't have the documentation or as nice a UI or any of the other friction solvers that a proper product has. The other thing that's going to kill them is they're going to come out with their first release and they're going to think they're done. If it's any good at all, then their user base is going to ask for something different and it's never going to be never ending of constant improvements on a product that really wasn't built for it. So then they're going to get this really horrible situation where they didn't design it right in the first place and it's not extensible. It was a 80% good. It was a really nice spreadsheet. But now we need 30 people in there and they're messing around with the formulas. What do you do? So it looks great for the first week before it gets really hit by the users. And at that point, they're going to be asking things that would require a radical rebuild. And I know this because we have to do radical rebuilds all the time as the assumptions that we made out of the gate turn out not to be right. And so we have to suck it up and do more engineering. That's not because we're morons. It's because we didn't know. And it's going to be the same, especially if it's a side project for a company. I love it. Tom, we could do this interview for hours and hours, but we're running out of time. And so we got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so my final question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? It kills me when people open up the screen share from the very first second of the call And then for the next half hour, I'm looking at whatever slide we last stopped on. In my opinion, the second you pull that screen up, you stop conversation. You can't see their eyes properly. They can't see your emotions. And there's a very good chance that they're thinking about something else or looking at something else. So you've got to get comfortable opening and closing that share screen only as you need it for like the graph or the chart or the thing that's important for what you're explaining or asking about. And then close it again. And now we're talking as humans, pop back up again, talking as humans. Don't just have the slide up all the time because you will kill conversation. Oh, I loved talking as humans with you today, Tom. Thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Thank you all so much. I really enjoyed it. You're the man. 
This actionable tactic on selling to power is sponsored by SalesLoft. Don't start from zero when a champion introduces you to power. Explain the three to four priorities you learn from the champion, but then ask them to validate what's really important to them or what we missed. And we partnered with SalesLoft to give you a whole bunch of talk tracks on selling to power. The link is in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Today's sales email tip is brought to you by Lavender. If you want to get more replies to your sales emails, try removing exclamation points and question marks from your email subject lines. They cause open rates to plummet. Instead, make the subject line feel internal. It should be short, one to three words, and it should showcase the topic of the email, but also be about them. We sat down with Lavender and built a sales email framework guide with emails for every step of your sales process. And there is a link in the show notes to get it for free. Your top four actionable takeaways from this episode with Tom Williams. Number one, help your customer build a bear case for why they shouldn't be trying to build your software in-house on their own. You should be teaching them, yo, it's kind of expensive to handle training, maintenance, support documentation, customization of software, and like that's our entire business. We can do it for you. When you can show the delta between what it would cost them and what just buying your software looks like, you will make a great case for yourself. Number two, If you're having trouble building your own POV, hit up a senior exec at your company and ask to get lunch with them to help you build one. You have so many wonderful benefits of this. One, you get to establish credibility in your company as someone who is actually trying to move the needle. Two, you're going to learn a ton and develop a relationship with someone that will help you in the rest of your career. And three, this is most important, you might get some free guacamole at lunch. It's not a 30 Minutes to President's Club episode if you don't talk about guacamole. Number three, don't show up to your first call expecting the customer to do all of the hard work answering your questions. Instead, bring a point of view to the call that introduces a new way of looking at a root cause of a problem you think they might have. And number four, speaking of that POV, if you're going to an event, use that as an opportunity to test that point of view with other executives that are attending and maybe coming up to your booth or maybe sitting next to you in a session. Those reps will help you get more comfortable delivering the POV and you'll also learn a lot about potential objections that they might give you so you can be prepared for that in a sales call. Now, Nick, how can listeners help us out? They can help us out by helping themselves out because Tom was so, so generous, just like that executive who's buying you chips, guac, and maybe even some fajitas. Tom has agreed to be giving away some free licenses of Clary Align and some templates embedded with mutual action plans that you can steal, use, and help get your deals closer to close so that you can buy your own guac and not have to pilfer it from your senior executive's expense reports. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the show. 
Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Notes.